So if you've been here before, you know turning on the recorder is not my strength. I have it kind of turn on the recorder. That is very helpful to those that want to listen later. All right, well, welcome to the table, everyone. We are so glad you are here. Um, wasn't the food delicious? Yes. yes. So good. We are so blessed by many life groups, many people who come to make our food every week, and they just spoil us with goodness. And we are so, so grateful for them coming and making their time to make the food, um, to shop for the food, and then serve the food. And so when you get a chance, as you go through that line, I hope that you are thanking them well, because they do, they really do take good care of us. All right, if you are new to the table, you are jumping into a fun series. We are in Ecclesiastes. So this is in the Old Testament, and uh, it is a wisdom book. And I'm going to be real honest with you, this is a book I have not spent a lot of time in in my lifetime. So read through it, uh, and never needed to teach it, and so in preparing to teach, you study a little bit differently. And I don't know that I'm quite to the point of loving it like Alec is, but I do really appreciate it way more now in my preparation for tonight than I did when I began the study. And I think that's a really good gift from the Lord, to look at it with its depth of richness and what it's trying to teach us about Him. So just last week, I got to have uh, coffee with someone you all know. Her name is Allie Billman. Does anyone know Allie? Yes. The wonderful Allie Billman and I, we were going to get together. We had a lot of things we wanted to talk about, um, a lot of really good things. And one of the topics we were talking about was teaching. She was getting ready to teach. I was getting ready to teach. And so it's, you know, how's it going? You know, what are you learning? Those types of questions, kind of normal when you sit down. She's doing a lot of teaching as a resident in lots of different areas. And so it's fun to hear what the Lord has been teaching her and how the Lord is refining her as she's spending time in preparation. And so she was asking me the same question. What is happening in your teaching? What is the Lord kind of showing you as you were going? And I thought it was interesting. Um, as I was beginning, I had not started writing anything yet. But I shared with her that as I kept reading this section, and as I kind of kept reading this book as a whole, I keep hearing a parent's voice. A parent's voice saying, son, daughter, you get to choose what you do here. But can I tell you where this ends? Can I tell you what's going to happen? So I hear a parent's voice. Now, I am a parent, and I actually have a picture of my children, hopefully. Oh, I know, aren't they precious? Now, these are not all mine. The little sweet Snow White in the middle is not mine. That is my niece, Jolie. Uh, but the three boys, they belong to me, and I just, this is my favorite picture, because Jolie asked her two older cousins, who are both teenagers, ninth grade, eighth grade, if they would dress up with her for Halloween, and they said yes. They absolutely did. So we have Sleepy and Grumpy to go with Snow White, and then the soccer player on the left. She didn't ask. He would have if she'd asked, um, because they will do anything that Jolie asks of them. Um, but I want to show you a picture. You guys don't get to see them. We talk about our children sometimes, and I, they're not here. So you probably see them if you're at Sunday Grove running around, but those three hooligans belong to the Butler family. Um, and the two oldest have some new freedoms going on in their life. They are teenagers, and so new things are coming. Namely, a home. I was transitioning into their worlds. 
Lots of new freedoms come with that, right? Lots of new responsibilities. And so for one of them, I will not share which one of them, um, to spare them some of the embarrassment of this, but one of them, as we were talking through, like trying to make clear, we've got some expectations, because here's what's gonna happen if you are not careful. This is going to become an appendage to you. It's all you're gonna look at, it's all you're gonna want to look at, and every time you sit down, you're just gonna pull it up, and it's gonna just be a part of you. Without even noticing it, this is what's going to happen. And so we're trying to lay out for him. Okay, you get to choose how this goes, but I'm telling you, this is not this is not where you want it to be. And so I don't remember exactly what day it was. I don't know if it was the first day he had it. It was definitely within the first week he had it. Uh, he was at school one day, and I picked him up from school, and he instantly gets in my car and goes, my phone stopped working. Panic. It just stopped working. Like this brand new phone, he probably had it, I mean, a few days. It is not working. That's weird. And so I asked him to, to show me the phone. And so I look at it. Well, what had happened was we had set some parameters on this phone as the parents. You only have so much time on it, and then it shuts down. And somehow, he is supposed to be at school, right? He's in ninth grade. He is supposed to be at school, learning all day long. All four hours of his phone time was gone. Gone. Like, what were you doing, honey? What is happening? Remember our conversation, right? This is not an appendage. This is not part of you. You do not have to look at it all the time. Well, he showed us he was not ready for that. He was not ready for the full freedoms of the phone. So I was thankful that we'd set some boundaries and we're helping him and we'll continue him, right, to help him with these boundaries. And as funny as like this choice is for him, this phone, learning how to set um, some good expectations for him. Right, we have some really big conversations that are about to happen in his life. Some really big conversations. Because he's gonna start making some choices that really are significant. And so when we are cautioning him and telling him, I can see where this goes as your parents. Like these decisions that you're making, they're leading somewhere. And so they are going to matter later. Right? If we don't start listening to the voices of wise counsel that have been given to us. And as you sit here tonight, and we sit with Ecclesiastes 2, it's going to ask you, can you trust these words without having to experience them for yourself? Actually, that's really what the whole book is going to be about. Every week we come into this. You get to choose. Can you hear me when I tell you where this will lead? Will you choose something different because of what I've said? That's the question of Ecclesiastes 2. So Kohelet, the teacher, the preacher, the one writing to us, is in search of meaning and purpose in this life. But the repeated cadence of all his efforts is futility. And the Hebrew word means vapor, breath, heavily. It's just heavily. You can see it, right? If you're here the first week, we had our beautiful sensi, we had some vapor coming up, you can see it. But you have no ability to grab it. 
You can't hold on to it. And the more you try to control it and grow it, the less you have of it. It has no staying power. Breath, vapor. There's nothing to it. And last week, at the end of Ecclesiastes 1, Hillel examined wisdom and knowledge as the point of this life. And he found that there was no satisfaction in it. All he found that was wisdom, void of the Lord, at the center is useless, vapor, nothing to it. And tonight, Kohelet is going to swing all the way to the other side. We're going to test folly tonight, because that seems to be all we humans can do. We're just going to swing from one side to the other. We'll just try both ends out. We're going to see where that lands. And he's going to walk us through this detailed and like long-lasting experiment into the pleasures and enjoyments of this life to determine if they can bring purpose and meaning and satisfaction to our lives. Does the chasing after the things of the world hold out to us? Do they have profit for our lives? Do they have meaning to our lives? Is there anything of substance that can come from embracing every self-indulgence we ever had? What use is this, he asks. And remember, we don't know for sure who wrote this book. Alec walked us through that for the first week. There's good evidence it, it could have been Solomon, but there's good evidence it really couldn't have been Solomon. And whatever, whoever wrote this, it is really clear that the author wants us to be thinking Solomon. Right? He wants us to picture Solomon. Ecclesiastes 1.1 starts, it says, the teacher, son of David, King David, King of Solomon, or King of Jerusalem. In Ecclesiastes 1.12, I have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. He says from the very beginning, I want you to have Solomon in mind as you are reading this book. Which is kind of important, because the Bible holds out Solomon as one whose wisdom and influence and wealth and prestige really have no comparison. There's no one like King Solomon, before or after him. There's nothing that is compared to him. If we read in uh, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, you can get kind of the whole scope of Solomon's life, but we're going to pick out just a few, few things. It says in 1 Kings 3.12 that the Lord gives Solomon with wisdom that no one before or after has or will ever have, and with riches and honor so that no king will equal him. And then, I want to read a longer passage for you, because this one's interesting. 1 Kings 4, verse 20. All right, it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as sand of the sea. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provisions for one day were 150 bushels of fine flour and 300 bushels of meal, 10 fattened cattle, 20 range cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and pin-fed poultry. For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tiptah to Gaza, 
and over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. Right? And so we get this picture of his kingdom. It's expanding. It's at peace. The nation is full of plentiful food. And I, I don't know, maybe you caught this a little better than I did. Uh, the list looks really impressive, right? That just keeps going. I have no idea what those wanted to see. Like, had no idea. That may be something you know. I, I don't know why you know that. But I had to go hunting in some commentaries. And so I was digging through some offices today. And there was kind of a range given, but all of them started with this number. 15,000 people. This could be 15,000 people, three meals a day, every single day. That's a lot of provision. That's a lot of opulence right there. Right? There's no one else in scripture that compares when it comes to what Solomon has. So who better to do this taste study, this test study, right? To see what the limits of our pleasure could be. He has everything. All has been given to him. And so he sets out. All right, Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 2. Hold on, I'll get there. It starts like this. I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. And he did. He's about to lay out his royal resume of pleasure for us. The things that he spent the majority of his life consuming and conquering and collecting. But before he shares, shares our list, right? This list of pleasure-seeking opportunities, this Solomon, Solomon-like figure lays before you a life of abundance, in excess, and says, but it turned out to be futile. Turned out to be vapor. Right? He doesn't even get into his list yet. He's already told you the end. All that I have, vapor. See, his chase after the pleasures of this world is if that could sustain him in his deep need for purpose. He can see it in front of him, but he can never grasp it. And I think we can be tempted as college students, and even me as a grown woman, to very quickly kind of disregard what he is saying. You don't know. You don't know. Right? Because we will never have the same opportunities that he had. And so we just disregard it. And I, I will say, pleasure-seeking, as a college student with $20, is going to be very different than what someone with a million dollars has and what someone with a billion dollars has. That is going to be different. But the brokenness of our hearts and what we chase after can be very much the same. And so let's not disregard what he has to say to us just because he has more than us. Let's listen in and listen well. Can you trust these words without experiencing them for yourselves? Let's continue. I said about laughter 
It is madness and about pleasure. What does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pole of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Laughter is madness. What a weird statement. <coughs> weird phrase. I had to think on that for a little bit. Why would he say that? He's actually going to talk about laughter a few more times in this book. And none of them does he speak highly of it. None of them have um, the laughter we think of, like this pleasant, enjoyable. It's more about a mocking tone. In chapter 7, he will say, grief, grief is better than laughter. And what I think he is getting at is that laughter has this way of being kind of flippant and dismissive of the realities of the pain and brokenness of this world. It just tries to brush it off as if you can ignore it forever. And so he says to act this way, to act as if that were true, it's just foolish. It's madness. There's too much pain in this world to just disregard. And so he explores the, the pull of wine on his body. Right? To let the, the wine, the spine wine, right? If he has opulence at every level, this is not just cheap wine, this is fine wine. And he's going to let it take kind of the edge off of life a little bit. Right? Let it pull him in. To momentarily let go of the pressures of running a kingdom. To not quite, to not have to think all the time about what I should and I shouldn't be doing. To see if this pull of wine can satisfy him. To satisfy his restless mind, his longing for answers. Will wine do this? Because he knows life is but a breath, right? There at the very end. Very end he is talking about our few days. Our life is but a breath. It too is quickly passing. And he doesn't give you an answer. So he lays this out. What wine can do to satisfy us. But he doesn't answer he just keeps going. Verse 4. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also own livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. When it comes to worldly pleasures, he was very successful, wasn't he? That's a long list. A long list to try out. 
Not just one house, he has multiple houses. Not just a vineyard or a garden or a part, many parks, many vineyards, many gardens, multiple reservoirs. The idea that he is master, both his surrounding enemies, right? His kingdom is at peace all around him. They actually send him tribute, right? This is how he's funding everything. His enemies are funding him. And he's surrounded himself with beauty like nothing else. So he is also powerful over nature. And the list continues. He doesn't have just a servant or few servants. He has lots of servants. So many servants that have stayed and even had children there. And when we hear this, we cannot think American um, servants in slavery. This is more of an indentured servant, someone who had a debt that he couldn't pay and has chosen to stay here. And the point he is trying to draw out for us is less about the servant and more about someone living a very comfortable, easy life. There is nothing he needs to do for himself. Nothing he has to compete. Everything he desires is taken care of. Those massive quantities of food, he's not preparing that. He's not cleaning that up. He's not checking those animals. None of those things are on Solomon's plate. He has wealth so great that silver was his commonest bronze. Just throw it out there. You just walk on it. It's of nothing. He has gathered male and female singers for himself, and I want you to hear streaming services. All the entertainment on whatever he wants. Right? You want a dramatic showing? Right? We've got singers for that. More of a comedy guy? All right, we've got singers for that. So whatever he wants to entertain himself at any point, right? Come on in. His court is open. He's ready. Sex? Yep, he has that in abundance as well. Right? The text says he has many concubines. But if this is the Solomon-like figure that we are thinking of, then we know from 1 Kings 10 that he actually had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I, I do not want this to be vulgar or disrespectful in any way. But if he had chosen, he could have been with a different woman every single day for two and a half years. 700 wives, 300 concubines. This also explains, right, the quantities of food. Right? This adds up real quick. With that many people, wives, concubines, children, servants, their children, the kingdoms and provinces that are coming in, that is a lot to care for. Continue in verse 9. Alright. I'm actually going to start in 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. 
if our section was to end here, if I was going to stop, it would, it would leave us thinking that this test of finding meaning and purpose could be found in pleasure. Right? He has hit the top of every category, of everything you could ever want. And he says, all that I saw, all that I could see with my eyes, anything I desired, I had it. I did not deny it. Unrestrained, self-gratification was his reward for all of his work. Right? He never told himself no in any category. Which is why he has to continue to verse 11. When I consider all that I had accomplished and what I labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. His case study of pleasure has ended. The result, just like wisdom, heaven. Comfort, power, influence, security, sex, entertainment, even in excess, could not bear the weight of giving meaning and purpose to his life. So the question remains, can you trust these words? without experiencing them for yourselves. That's what we're going to pause and we'll come back to. We'll take a little break and we'll return. Alright, our Solomon-like character. He has spent his entire life giving in to every desire he has ever had. And it isn't until he's reaching the end of his life that he can see what a wasted life that was to chase after worldly pleasure and worldly experience, because that's kind of what we're about. It's less the stuff and more the experience. We want to go see, we want the tiny, tiny house so we can travel everywhere and experience everything. But it comes from the same place. And you sit here, we sit here, you're in your late teens, early 20s, and you're setting the stage for what your life is going to be all about. You're picking degree plans, making some big decisions. Who am I going to be? What am I going to be about? What will my life be centered on? So what a gift it is to be in Ecclesiastes at this point in your lives to wrestle with the question that Kohath was having to question at the very end of his life. You get to start at the beginning. Can you trust his words to you? Even if you don't experience it. I want to take a look at our text again. So we're going to look at it a little bit differently. We've got some things highlighted for you. Hopefully. There we go. Alright, I want you to look at the, the yellow and how those stand out. 
I, 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 my, me, I, we get going, yeah. myself, I, my, me, I. It's a lot of those. If you counted them, or if you wanted to count them, there's 19 I's used. Seven, myself. Seven, my's. It's my mind, my body, my pleasure. I tested, I increased, I built, I made, I acquired, I owned, I amassed, I gathered, and for what? Myself. All of this was for himself. The gospel of self. That's what those pleasures led into. That's what his life was centered on. The gospel of self. Listen, good food and good drinks, houses, beautiful gardens, dishwashers, Roombas, friendships, family, Netflix, Hulu, sex, good jobs, being good leaders. These are not evil and bad things. They were just never designed to fulfill you. They cannot withstand the pressure of bringing you purpose and meaning and lasting value in any way. And the harder you try, and the longer you spend on it, trying to chase them, trying to make them be your identity, and your comfort, and your security, your joy, your peace, the more restless you will become. They do not last. They are ever-changing. They're circumstantial. What could they offer you? It will last not just this lifetime, right? It won't even make it past that, let alone into eternity. Now see, we have to do the hard work right now of assessing where our hearts really chase things and where we have set ourselves up to be the ones who determine good. I don't know if you caught that at the very beginning. He is the one that gets to decide what is good. Right? And if your gospel is yourself, well, that's a good way to start it. So I want us to take some time to see what you are centering your lives around. So I've got some questions for us. I think they're going to come up on the screen. Do you ever tell yourself no? For the most part, you just kind of do whatever you like whenever you like to. And those things that kind of make you uncomfortable, uh, don't enjoy doing those quite as much, you know, we just don't do those. We just avoid those. We cut out those relationships that are complicated. We say yes again and again, and we never learn to tell ourselves no for the purpose of something better. Can you hear no? you tell yourself no? 
what captures your thoughts. As you just sit in a quiet room and your mind begins to wander, where does it go? What motivates you to do what you are doing? Right? Is the job that you are chasing after, is it about the job or what that job gets you later in life? What that job maybe provides for you outside of work, right? That's why we take the jobs we do, sometimes. What's the pleasure that comes from this job? What is fueling your hope for the future? Here's a big one, and I hope you spend some time thinking on it. What will you sacrifice to get what you want? Friends? Family? Sacrifice them for work? Sacrifice them for money? Are you willing to sacrifice your time with the Lord to chase after something at school? Or maybe you want to chase after your family over God. Right? This can go a lot of different ways. What are you going to sacrifice to get what you really wanted in life? God will tell you what your heart's desire is. And to chase after. And to give yourself to anything besides the Lord. It's like chasing a mirage in the desert. It's a delusion of your own mind. And it will leave you to die. There is nothing there. It cannot sustain you. It will not give you meaning or purpose in any way. Can you trust these words without experiencing them, without chasing them? Without giving yourselves over to them again and again, can you hear it? There are only two options to that question. And the Lord can prove me wrong, right? Which is always good because he is God and I am not. So this, this is possible. But here's what I think. I would guess in a room this size, the vast majority will have to learn the futility of pleasure by chasing after it for yourselves. You'll chase after the pleasure of stuff, the pleasure of relationships, the pleasure of experiences, and you'll have to do it for yourselves. You will not trust the words, and you will not realign your lives differently because of them. But oh, how I wish you would. I really do, I wish you would. And it's not just because I want to save you from pain and consequences later in life. Although I believe that is true if you will listen to these words, that the pleasures of this world have nothing lasting for you. In the end, what I want more than anything else is for the Lord of hosts to reign in your lives. 
in every area of your lives. Not just pieces of you, not just little snippets of you, all of you. Because he is worthy of it. And that is what you are made to chase after. It is him that we are made for. The pleasures of this world, they do not last. And they are only meant to magnify him. They are gifts from him to remind us of his goodness, his faithfulness, his love for us. I want you to have a life that is not spent on the gospel of self, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one that came and died for you while you were still sinners. The one who took on what you could not bear for your sake. And is reigning now and waits to bring us home for all of eternity. That's a gospel we're chasing after. Not a meal. If you have your Bibles, I want to read just some verses over us this evening. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. It says, Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. He will satisfy. He will not fail you. He will give you strength to endure the brokenness of this world. Psalm 16, 2. said to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have nothing besides you. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night when my thoughts trouble me, I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is my, at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. What are we doing if we are chasing after anything but that? What is the point? He is your portion. He is your future. What he has set before me is pleasant and good and for my good, and it brings joy and rejoicing.
framing up what life should be ordered in, and it is him at the center. If that is not you, there is grace, there is forgiveness, and it is in abundance. And I hope you'll talk about it with us. If you are wrestling with this at any level, last week, this week, I hope you don't just walk away. If there's something the Lord is kind of stirring in you, don't ignore it. Come talk to us about it. You want to pray for us in the close of our evening?
Oh, gracious and merciful Father, how good you are to us. How faithful is your love to us. God, in your gift of your word that warns us, God, that guides us, that points us to you, and how you have ordered this world to be. Oh, Father, how would you help us to assess our hearts? How would you help us how to seek forgiveness where forgiveness is needed? Father, would you help us to pursue you and chase after you? How would you give us a bigger picture of yourself? As of the things of this world and the pleasures that can tempt us fade into the background as we see your glorious face more and more and more. Lord, let that be for the rest of our days. For your glory, God, and our is in your son's name I pray this.